John 6, beginning in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that the disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Great storytelling is as much a gift as it is a skill. With practice, anyone can be a good storyteller. But some people, you know the ones in your life, have the gift of turning a phrase. One of my mentors, Dick DeWitt, I suspect even now, is holding court, keeping a group of heavenly dignitaries in stitches. It's as true for adventure as it is for comedy. How you tell the story matters. Great storytelling makes the hearer feel like they're there, right now, as the events are unfolding. The tension, the pressure, the high stakes, and yes, sometimes the comedic punchline. They feel as real for you as if you'd been there when it happened. And of course, that's easiest for them to do if they were there when it happened. The ultimate combination is when a great storyteller was there for a great story. They were there. They remember what it felt like. And they have this gift, and they use it for their own deeply personal telling. Their perspective of what struck them most about the event. And sharing that perspective with that gift can make you feel as though you were there with them. Now, John is certainly a gifted storyteller, whether or not the story was his. Certainly, he was not there in the beginning when the Father, Son, and Spirit were, but his prologue is incredible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John was there for Jesus' ministry. He was either eyewitness or heard directly from one to all of the events that took place. Last week, we heard John's account of that time that Jesus fed 5,000 men from a mere handful of barley, cakes, and fish. He was there. He ate the cakes and the fish, and we got to hear about it. 
Now here again in these verses, we have that opportunity. John was in the boat. He was in the boat when these events took place. He saw Jesus walking across the water with his own eyes. And now, several decades later, he's telling us about the events. He's writing his gospel. And he's writing with awareness of what Christians have read about this event in the gospels of Matthew and Mark that are already circulating among the churches. And so with regards to what details to include, John has a lot of freedom and John has a lot to choose from. There are at least four unique miracles in this one event. Matthew, Mark, and John all tell us that Jesus walked on the water. Matthew adds the detail of Peter's momentary attempt to do likewise, a miracle that lasted a little bit. Matthew and Mark both report the miracle of the storm being calmed immediately. And John implies that by the detail of this miraculous immediate landing safely at their destination. All the writers tell us the truth about what happened that day. But they still have the freedom to include or omit details as the Holy Spirit leads and for the specific purposes of their gospel. Matthew tells a story that emphasizes how scared the disciples were. Matthew's telling has fear at its core. All the versions reference fear, but Matthew stresses it. And that's why he adds, I think, that specific example of Peter's fear, which was so strong, it was able to momentarily overwhelm the miracle that God was working in his life. Fear is powerful. And the disciples' situation certainly makes fear feel justified. Christ is physically absent from them, and that feels like total absence to them. John makes sure to tell us in verse 17 that it's gotten dark now as well. So they're alone in the dark in a boat on a lake that is particularly prone to storms. The the surrounding geography of the Sea of Galilee basically made it like a wind tunnel on the lake. So when there were strong winds even far away, they would funnel down across the lake and make these big storms of waves, even if there was no precipitation. Let me say on that, in general, we want to be careful not to spiritualize the historical events of the Bible. Scripture's main purpose in preserving the story of David and Goliath is not so that you will identify the five smooth stones in your life. But we also shouldn't ignore obvious spiritual parallels to events. And I think this is especially true in John because he's been emphasizing with person after person the error of hearing Jesus only on a physical level when he's speaking to spiritual realities. So keeping that balance in mind, consider this. Are there times when your life feels like a spiritual wind tunnel of the Galilean Sea? That your life just seems to spawn off storm after storm after storm. And we wonder, what is it about me? Why does this stuff keep happening? And it's absolutely the case 
that sometimes these events are simply the result of providential circumstances. As we counsel one another, we should assume that's what's happening, that it's something that was outside of the person's control. There are times when nothing we could have done would have prevented a trial. Those storms are hard and intense, and we need to remember that they are designed to bring us closer to Christ and to make us more like Christ, which is a painful experience. But sometimes, in self-examination, we need to admit that we've orchestrated our lives to make them ripe for storms. Maybe we're prioritizing the wrong things or finding our worth in the wrong place. Maybe we're driven by the approval of others or by emotions rather than by truth. Sometimes we alienate ourselves from God and from his church. We don't seek godly counsel or we ignore it or even lash out at it when it's offered. There are many things in life that are outside of our control. But if we feel like the storms are always present, It's worth asking God to show us anything we're doing that makes our lives ripe for these types of storms. Now, this storm, like all that we face, presents an opportunity for the disciples to prove what they believe. Jesus told them to cross the sea while, as Mark tells us, he went off on his own to pray. And now, in the darkness of night, And as the power of the storm increases, what do they believe? Do they believe their eyes, which tell them they are in grave danger? Or do they believe that there is always safety in obedience to Christ? Do they believe that Christ is a mere miracle worker who needs to be physically with them in order to protect them? Or do they believe that he is the Lord of all creation at all times? I thought it was interesting that one of my commentaries pointed out just how many famous artists have painted either part of this story. Either the part where Jesus is alone in prayer, you've seen those paintings, or the part where the disciples are in the boat in the midst of the storm. And what you don't see is an artist who's painted the one composite picture just as the gospel writers show it to us. Now, as an aside, this is a problem that many of us find with all representations of Jesus in art or media. Even if you don't think that they're out of step with the second commandment, you have to admit that all of these art forms struggle to capture the complexity of the incarnate Christ, or the realities of his ministry. The Jesus of art and media is nearly always one-dimensional or suggests things about him that are not true. Complexity and nuance are really difficult to get across. So in this case, as that same author concludes, it's while the storm was raging and the darkness enveloped the little group of men, they were nevertheless perfectly safe Because the Lord was even then interceding for them. How encouraging is that? There will be times, even in the storms in your life, when it feels like Christ is not with you. But doesn't scripture say that we always have an intercessor in the courts of God? 
The disciples have been rowing for hours. And it's not that they're getting nowhere. They've made it three or four miles into it's probably a five-mile trip. Nonetheless, they're exhausted. And it's clear that even their best efforts aren't enough to get them safely to the other side of the sea. If the disciples really can't pull this off, and they can't, then what's needed is for God to intervene. And you know what? He will. We kind of chuckle at the phrase divine intervention, right? It sounds like such a a rare and unusual occurrence to the outside world. Oh, there was divine intervention. But the thoughtful Christian sees divine intervention woven into the tapestry of daily life. Rather than being left to depend upon your own strength and wisdom and abilities, aren't you encouraged that you have a God who is always willing to intervene? And in a moment like that, you know the disciples were. But notice that Jesus did not come to them early in this storm. And he didn't wait to put them in danger. The outcome was never in doubt. He was Lord of the sea and the storms. And most importantly, he was Lord of them and every hair that is or ever was on their heads. He presents himself to them when their need is so obvious as to leave no question about their inability. And pastorally, I've seen God work this way many times. What does it take for us to realize and admit our complete dependence on God? Sometimes it's nothing less than being confronted with truly insurmountable crises. The ones that we've tried to fix again and again. We've given everything we have. We have nothing left. And only then will we finally admit, I can't fix this. And that makes us realize we can't actually fix anything. Isn't this what John's been telling us in a way all throughout this gospel? The woman at the well, the invalid man, the crowd of 5,000 men, the disciples in a boat. Sometimes we need to be confronted with the impossibility of solving our current situation in order to finally understand that there is only one who can do what is otherwise impossible in both our lives and in our souls. I loved one professor called it the bankruptcy of human calculation. The bankruptcy of human calculation. That's the disciples seeing the sun rapidly approaching with 5,000 mouths to feed. That's the invalid man who has no one to lift him into the pool. It's the woman who expected to have to return to the well every day for the rest of her life and still never be satisfied. It's Nicodemus who couldn't imagine how one could be born again. It's the bankruptcy of human calculation. We say there is no way this can happen. And the antidote for this way of thinking is what he calls the all-sufficiency of divine provision. John's tried to show us this again and again. And what encouragement. When we finally recognize the bankruptcy of our own calculations to recognize that we serve a God who can and will supply all our needs according to his inexhaustible riches in glory. The disciples needed peace. They needed peace of heart, 
and they needed peace of seas. And Jesus provided that peace. He provided it by providing himself. That's why his words of peace are so simple. It is I. He calms their fears and he calms the sea by reminding them that he is who he says he is. If they had remembered that before, their hearts would have been calmed before. And I wonder perhaps if even the seas would have as well. God solves difficult situations through all kinds of means. It's all fueled by his power, but he uses a lot of different means to solve difficulty. He may use human strengths or abilities or technological advances or medicines. And sometimes in this life, he doesn't solve difficulties. He doesn't resolve them. But whatever he does in our troubled circumstances, he always offers resolution for troubled human hearts through offering of himself. Trust in him. He steps into the boat and the seas are calm. He steps into the boat and their destination is safely at hand. Do not misunderstand Jesus' point here. It's not that Jesus needed to be physically present with them to calm their hearts and to calm the sea. What the disciples needed was to remember and believe that he is who he says he is. And only they were unable to do that until he presented himself to them. They needed Jesus to be with them physically because they were weak in their faith. In Mark's telling of this same story, he says, And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This was a problem of their weakness of faith. The point of the stories is not, it's great to have a miracle worker with you. The point of the stories is Christ is Lord of all creation. He is who he says he is. This is what the crowds got all wrong. They loved their miracle worker. They did not love the Savior of the world. Jesus had disappeared, had dispersed them the night before, but many had not gone home. They just camped out nearby. And in the morning, they look around and they realize that both Jesus and the disciples have moved on. And they too go to the other side of the lake looking for Jesus. Some, as we read this morning, went by boat. Others, we read in the Gospels, walked around. And when they find the disciples and Jesus in the same place, they can't figure out how it happened. Because what they know is that there was one boat. They had seen it. And the disciples had left from it, left on it without Jesus. And they would have seen Jesus had he made the roughly 10-mile trip around the lake, as many of them were doing. And so when they see Jesus and the disciples together, in their minds, there was no way for Jesus to have gotten here. And that's because in their minds, the only options that can be are the options they can imagine. Their faithless imaginations cannot fathom that God may have ways of accomplishing his purposes that go beyond what we could ever design or predict. Kids, there's a good lesson in this about how we pray. It's all too easy in life to pray for means rather than outcomes or to pray for paths rather than destinations. 
I know I want this, so I'll pray for that because then I can do that because I'll pray for that. And then in the end, I'll be admired by that person or whatever it is. We've got our plan. We've got the whole plan. And we lay it all out for God and pray because we want him to give us all the steps that we can imagine that will get us from here to there to make good things happen. Sometimes in a crisis, this can even prevent us from praying at all because we look at a situation and think that it's so impossible, we don't have anything to pray for. We can't think of a single thing that could happen to fix this. Nothing we could imagine would be good for us. So what do we even pray for? So we don't. Think of what that would have looked like in this story. Couldn't the disciples have said, why bother praying? What's Jesus going to do? Calm the sea? He isn't even here. Or in the Exodus, why bother praying? What's God going to do? Make Pharaoh change his mind? Part the waters so we can walk through them? Give us manna from heaven? Why bother praying? And then when we do pray, we pray for this thing or that experience or this person's approval. And maybe that path is what God is going to use to get us to a good destination. But I'll tell you as an adult who's been praying for many years, most often I'm wrong. When I think I know how God is going to get me from here to there, I'm wrong. Many times, like the crowds, I'm just no good at imagining the awesome things that God could do in my life. I only see what I can see. And so I pray for that. What's better is to pray for godly destinations rather than specific paths. To praise God that his mind is much more amazing and creative and good than his mind. And when I pray that, I often find that God does unexpected things to bring good in my life that I never would have seen coming and never would have thought to ask for. Now it's ironic in verse 25 that the crowds refer to Jesus as rabbi or teacher, because though they intend to honor him, they're about to disagree with just about everything that he says. I think that is the ancient form of with all due respect. Because in reality, they're about as open to his purposes as teacher as they are to his purposes as king, which is not very. They want to know how he got here. How did you get here? And look at what Jesus does. He doesn't answer their question. Because to do so would have reinforced the wrong lesson. They still see Jesus' most important attribute as his ability to work miracles. And adding just another miracle to the list isn't going to help them until they begin to see these as not merely miracles, but as signs. And what they needed was not another sign on the list. They need a lesson on what the signs are about. What do the signs signify. And that's the rest of this chapter. It begins, though, with this indirect answer. It's called a mashal in verse 27. It's a, it's a paradoxical saying that's kind of like a riddle. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. You can hear the similarities between this and what he said to Nicodemus about being born again or to the woman about living water. And this crowd gets the point about as well as those two did. But we 
ought to do better. With the Holy Spirit as our guide, we ought to look at what Jesus says here and be encouraged. Jesus says that what we work for, the things that we pour our energies into in life, those things should produce the food that endures, the food that endures to eternal life. He says, striving after worldly things, the food that perishes, means you're working against what is good for you. Instead, use your gifts, your energies, your skills, your resources. Use all that you have in pursuit of Christ and his kingdom. For this is what pleases God. But notice the encouragement, the great encouraging news of this statement. The Son of Man will give this to you. This food, this food that you are working for, the Son of Man gives us this food. Yes, we work for it. We focus our energy and our attention on the things that produce eternal fruit, but we don't work in order to get it. We work for it because it's already been given to us. We'll talk more about this from next week's passage, but for now, let us see what the crowds fail to see so that our hearts can be encouraged even in the midst of storms. Christ tells us that he has and he freely gives all that we need. He shows us concrete proof that he is sovereign, that he is Lord over everything and circumstance that would tempt us to fear and doubt. And he shows us that he is with us. He is with his people. Even we seeing what the disciples don't, that when it looks or feels like he's far off, he is no less with us. It grows dark at times. And life gets stormy. But Christ is who he says he is. And he is, as he says, for you and with you. Thanks be to God.